Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. Yeah, that's me, Melissa Canchola, here on Truth Be Told Radio. And we're going to get started with lesson. This is Sanctification is of Grace by Dr. Vodi Vakum here on Trippy Toll Radio. The last section in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. And we begin this last section in Romans chapter 6 with another question. And as we look at these questions, what, what I want us to realize is a, a number of things. First is this. Paul is dealing with legitimate questions. He is answering legitimate questions that are posed as a result of the gospel that he proclaims. As we proclaim the gospel, as it was proclaimed by the apostles, these are questions that we will face inevitably. However, there is a manner in which we learn how to proclaim the gospel or something that is really not the gospel that avoids these questions because they sting a little bit if we don't understand the gospel properly. If we go back, for example, in chapter 6, verse 1, he asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why does he ask that question? Because as he preaches this gospel of grace and as he speaks about grace superabounding where sin abounds, there are those who argue, oh, wait a minute, Paul, are, are you suggesting that since where sin abounds, grace superabounds, that we ought to just sin so that grace may abound all the more? Are, are we to follow your argument through to its logical conclusion that way? And he says, may it never be. Absolutely not. We've died to sin. And here we have another question. These are not rhetorical questions. These are literal questions that people ask in light of the gospel of grace. Because we do not hold to the gospel of grace. Our flesh does not like the gospel of grace. Grace. My flesh wants to participate in its own deliverance. My flesh wants credit for what God does. So much so that even when I grasp the gospel of grace, I then turn sanctification into something that is not of grace so that if I can't take credit for my justification, at least I'll take credit for my sanctification. If you can't say amen, y'all say ouch. Okay? Because we don't like it. Not only do we not like it, we don't trust it. And even if I trust it for me, I don't trust it for you. That's the, that's, the, that's the self-righteous one. The self-righteous one says, you know what, I may be able to live out this Christian life just believing that it's all of grace, but, but, but other people can't, so we've got to give them something else. Verse 15, what then? Because remember where he ends. Verse 14, verse 14. 
for sin will have no dominion over us since we are not under law, but under grace. So he answers one question, and at the end of the question that he answers, he realizes, I know you also have a question about that. So he says, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? This is the more common question, by the way. The first question people are asking, that's a theoretical question. Let me push you on this, Paul, theoretically, hypothetically. Let me push you on this because it sounds like what you're saying is that there's this superabounding grace of God that meets the sin of man, and it's almost as though if you carry it to its logical conclusion, you're, you're saying that we should sin more. So, so let me push you a little bit on this. This one is the question that we so if it's not the law and we're under grace are you saying then that we don't have to keep the law I know you've heard that question if you're saying that we're saved by grace are you saying here's the way people ask it are you saying I can live any way I want to are, are you saying Here's the phrase. Let's say it all together. Once saved, always saved. Is that what you're saying? And by the way, we've said it before, but let me say it again to refresh your memory. That phrase, once saved, always saved, is not an accurate explanation of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Here's why. The idea of once saved, always saved accompanies a faulty idea of salvation. So when somebody says, are you saying once saved, always saved, here's what they do. First, they define salvation by you acting upon your will, walking an aisle, and just take your pick, inviting Jesus into your heart, asking Jesus into your heart, um, you know, committing your life to Christ. Uh, you, you go ahead and fill in the blank with any of those unbiblical terms that you want to that have to do with man exercising his will that don't mention repentance and don't mention faith. That's what the gospel requires, by the way, that we repent of our sin, that we turn from our sin, and that we believe what the gospel is communicated to us about Christ, that we believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him alone for salvation, as the catechism says. Right, boys and girls? That's what the Bible says salvation is. But we turn it into, I asked, I invited, I committed. So the one saved, always saved crowd says, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that everyone who's prayed that prayer, no matter what they do from then on, is saved? And I meant to bring the, the worship data up here, the bulletin up here for today. Can I borrow one? Quickly, thank you. And again, providentially, in our catechism today, look at question number 92. Will all who outwardly profess obedience to the gospel escape the wrath due to their sins? In other words, that's what people are really trying to ask. Wait a minute. Do you believe in one saved, always saved? Do you believe that everyone who outwardly professes? The answer, not all who outwardly profess obedience to the gospel, but only those who persevere in faith and holiness to the end shall be saved. 
And by the way, what's the next question immediately? Wait a minute, only those who persevere and hold so, so you mean it's by works? Ninety-three. Who then will persevere in faith and holiness unto the end and be saved? All true believers, by reason of God's eternal decree, not something in them, and unchangeable love, Christ's intercession and the spirit and word of God abiding in them, are preserved by the power of God and supplied with every spiritual blessing in Christ, there's that phrase we talked about last week. And therefore, because of all of that stuff that God has done, will most certainly persevere in faith and holiness unto the end and be saved. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Not this flippant once saved, always saved, that has at its core the idea that outward profession equals salvation. That is not what Paul is teaching here in Romans. That's not what we've seen anywhere as we've read. And even when we get to Romans 10, what we will see is this, this idea of salvation is asking Jesus into your heart. It's actually a misuse and misapplication of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. We repent and we believe and we're saved. But then there's something else. And here's what Paul's dealing with in this whole section, but specifically in chapter 6. We repent, we believe, we believe, and we're saved. And sanctification follows our justification as inexorably as night follows day. You will walk in righteousness if you are saved. You will walk in holiness if you are saved. You will be conformed to the image of Christ if you are saved. You will. You must. It will happen. Why? Because you died to sin. How can you keep living in sin if you died to sin? You can't. And here... Your slave to righteousness. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, there's the overarching umbrella state. That's the answer to the question. That's the short answer to the question. Now he's going to expound on the answer and explain what he means, but that's the answer to the question. The first question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the short answer to that question, and we unpack that. Now here's the other question. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? The answer, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You either present yourself as a slave to sin, or you present yourself as a slave to righteousness. And Paul's argument is, this is not what Paul is saying. 
Paul is not saying, oh, Christian, know that you have a choice to either be a slave of sin or to be a slave of righteousness. No. Slaves don't have choices. Come on now. Slaves don't have choices. That's part of being a slave. He's not saying, oh, Christian, you can either be a slave. No, he's saying, Christian, remember, you used to be a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. That's his answer to the question. Because on the one hand, we hear all this stuff about being free from the law. And we go, hey, man, I'm free from the law. I can just live any way I want. By the way, the answer to that question is yes. You're free from the law. You can live any way you want. But remember, your nature has been changed. So like the old preacher used to say, God changed your want to. Amen. He changed your want to. Part of being a Christian means we get a new nature. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Can I live any way I want? Absolutely. But the beauty of being in Christ is that he changes what it is that you want. He changes your very appetites. See, we ask that question and we forget the reality of the doctrine. When we ask that question, we're going, to wait a minute. You mean if I'm saved, I can live any way I want? Here's what we're asking. We're asking, we're saying, wait a minute now. Are you saying that I can be truly converted and then go and live the same life that I lived before and still get all the benefits of being truly converted? That question demonstrates ignorance. Why? Because you don't ask that question if you know what it means to be converted. And Paul demonstrates that here. He then goes on to explain. And as we look at this and as we listen to it, notice what he does. He goes back and forth and back and forth between these two ideas. This, this concept, it's the, it's the tale of two masters. Now, first, let me tell you what it's not. I've already explained this a bit, but let me say, this is not Paul saying, okay, Christian, here's your choices. This is Paul saying, okay, Christian, here was then, here is now. Here was then, here is now. Here's where you were, here's where you are. It's very important that we understand it this way. This is a truth. It is a reality. And I want to explain why that's so important. The second thing is this. He's speaking to believers, not to unbelievers. This is important. He's speaking to believers, not to unbelievers. Why is this important? If we miss, if we miss that, we make a mistake again about what the gospel produces versus what the gospel requires. If he's speaking to unbelievers, then he's basically saying to unbelievers, you need to gird up your loins and make a choice to be a slave to righteousness. That's works righteousness. That's not his message to unbelievers. The message to unbelievers is repent, believe, not try to do better. That's not the message to unbelievers. 
That's why. Those folks who say, you know, I, I wouldn't go to church, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff in my life that i got to get straightened out first. <laughs> Help you. I would come to God, but I'm not worthy of God yet. When I get worthy of God, then I'll come to God. If you could get worthy of God, you wouldn't need God. You can't get yourself worthy of God. There's nothing in you that would satisfy God. On your best day, it's filthy rags. That's not the answer. So, first, know that he's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to Christians. Second, know that he's not saying to Christians, you get choice A or you get choice B. He's saying to Christians, here's where you were, here's where you are. This is incredibly important. It's like we talked about before. Remember your training. Remember your freedom. So here we go. Verse 17. But you might want to circle that one. Because first he presents the two alternatives. And then he says, but. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, slaves to sin we're going to call A, okay, there's A. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, you were slaves to sin, you are no longer slaves to sin. This is not. Christian, there's A or there's B. No, it's Christian, there's what was and there's what is. Here's what was. You were slaves to sin. You were slaves to sin. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. There's B, okay? So A is the slave to sin side. B is the slave to righteousness side. Let's follow here. We learn a couple of things here. First, we learn that Paul is absolutely not talking about works righteousness. Because look carefully at his phrasing when he talks about where you used to be versus where you are. He does not say you used to be over here, but then you girded up your loins and you made the right decision. He does not say you used to be over here. But then you, unlike the other people around you, as Spurgeon says in his famous prayer, you know, Spurgeon offers this facetious prayer, saying, here it is, I know me, I ought to pray. You don't sit there and go, oh, thank you that I am not like the rest of them, but I, unlike they, have exercised my will. I, unlike they, have added to. No, that's not what Paul says here. He says, but, first of all, thanks be to God. So this is not, choose B, not A. This is, you are B, no longer A. This is also not, good job for choosing B, not A. This is, thanks be to God that you are B and not A. So thanks be to God, you who were a slave to sin have become obedient, there's the B, from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and have been set free. By whom? The one he just thanked. God. You didn't free yourself. You have been set free. That's who you are. You have been set free. Notice this. Our obedience from the heart comes right between, thanks be to God, and having been set free. He says, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, it is not some outward force, the law, which cannot make you righteous. It is something internal to you. It is this alien righteousness. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the beauty. Not only are you in him, he's in you. And so from the heart, you're obedient. In other words, you're not working up or mustering up your obedience. Your obedience is something that God has granted to you by his grace. By the way, here's where we dispel the myth. So the idea is, well, first there was this law, and the law was bad. The law was no good. Now we've got something else. We've got something better. Something better than the law? Here's the irony, and you hear it everywhere today in modern American Christianity, this idea that, you know what, we just love God and love people. We're not about all those rules and regulations. Just love God and love people. Here's what's ironic. Love God and love people is the summary of the whole law. first table of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Second table of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. So ironically, these people who hate the law of God and want to run away from the law of God have replaced it with the summary of the law of God in the name of not being held accountable to the law of God. Which one love God? Really? What does it look like when you love God? Maybe you don't want to have another God beside him? Maybe you don't want to worship idols or graven images? You mean maybe you don't want to blaspheme his name? You mean maybe you want to honor and reverence his day? Is that what you is that what you kind of mean? Because those would be the first four commandments that you think you're so far above. And the whole love people part, Wait, you, you just want, just love people, really? Forget all those rules and regulations, just love people, really? Like what people? Maybe your mother and your father? How would you love them? Maybe by honoring them? And, and what about other people? Would you maybe not kill them? Would you maybe not commit adultery? Would you maybe not steal from them? Does any of that sound familiar? These are the commandments of God. Love God, love people. It's a summary of the law, but it's sleight of hand. You can't get away from it. And somehow what we want to do is we want to say, no, we just want to love God and love people. And what we mean is we want to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward God and warm, fuzzy feelings toward people, regardless of whether or not 
we are violating those commandments that God has laid down. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul says, from your heart, you keep these things. Not because you've got a list in your pocket that you go and refer to, but you've been set free from sin, but not autonomous because you're still a slave, but now you're a slave to righteousness. And as a slave, you're an obedient slave to righteousness, inwardly obedient to righteousness. From your heart, you're obedient to, you're obedient to righteousness. Not in order to gain favor with God, but as a result of the favor that God has lavished upon you in Christ. It goes on. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm using this illustration for you. In other words, Paul is saying, I, I am not saying that I'm capturing the full essence of this theological reality. But I'm giving you something that you can grasp. Four, here's A again. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, just as you once, Paul is not saying, this is one choice, here's another choice. No, this is where you were. So now, here's B again. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Here's A again. Four, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. There's A. But here we go with B again. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. One more time. Summing up. A, the wages of sin is death. But, B, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. And it's not this or that, this or that, this or that. It used to be R. Used to be are. But let's look at what we used to be for a moment, shall we? When we were slaves to sin, when sin was our master, we look back on this and by the grace of God we see this. We did not see it then, but by the grace of God we see it now. That's the other thing. Remember, I said Paul is not talking here to unbelievers but to believers. Because unbelievers, much of this, they can't even comprehend. First, Impurity or uncleanness. Impurity or uncleanness. He says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to impurity or uncleanness. He then goes on to talk about lawlessness. I'm going to talk about that lawlessness in a minute. But for now, I want to merely cause your eye to look down to lawlessness so that you can see this point. The uncleanness is the internal reality that leads to the external manifestation of lawlessness. I'll say that again. Your uncleanness when you were slaves to sin, who you were on the inside, is what led to the external manifestation of lawlessness. 
that's incredibly important. Listen to what the, Bible, the way the Bible talks about sin. Psalm 51, verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'm, I'm dirty. I'm unclean. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There is a stain upon us. There is an uncleanness in us. There is no good in us. This goes back to Romans chapter 3. It is who we are on the inside, and that is why we walk in lawlessness. So before you came to Christ, you were filthy on the inside, dirty on the inside, and because of who you were on the inside, you manifested lawlessness on the outside. So you violated the law of God, not because of where you were raised, by whom you were raised, or the circumstances surrounding your life, be they socioeconomic or otherwise, but because on the inside of you, you were a sinner. That's why. And so the problem with the sinner is not that they need to change their environment, because no matter where they go, there they are. Your problem travels with you. It is intrinsic to you. It is you. I have seen the enemy, and he is me. where you were as a slave to sin. From the inside out, you were a slave to sin. And the things that you did outwardly were mere manifestations and limited manifestations at that because it was the grace of God that restrained you from manifesting fully what you were on the inside. No matter how bad you think you were, you were worse. You were worse on your best day. It was filthy rags. So when we were slaves to sin internally, in our very souls, we were stained, unclean. And what came out of us was lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Did we need to be, did we need to be restrained? Yes. Absolutely, we needed to be restrained. Praise God for those things that restrained us. That wasn't the answer. Think about this, mom, dad, and relate to your unsaved children. Why do they do what they do? Because there's not enough restraint? No, because they are filthy on the inside. At their core, at their core, they are absolutely rotten on the inside. At their core, they are completely and utterly disgusting to a holy and righteous God. And the only reason you don't see it that way is because you are blinded by these outward physical manifestations that hide from us what is truly on the inside. Do my 
parent, do my children need their sins restrained? Yes, they need their sins restrained. But if all I do is outwardly restrain the sins of my children and never, ever deal with them according to their greatest need, what I am doing is I am washing the outside of the cup alone. And if you give the law to an unbeliever and say to an unbeliever, do this, don't do that. Live like this. Don't live like that. All we're doing is we're, we're washing the outside of the cup. What they desperately need is to be changed. As we start this new session of Congress, it always amazes me, you know. That, by the way, for the last session of Congress, it was the worst thing. that It was Armageddon. It was the end of the world. Now this session of Congress, it's the second coming. Why? To Christians, and hear me. Let, me. let me just go ahead and lay this foundation. And I do this every time because no matter how many times I say it, I still need to say it. Because there are people who take what you say and just run all kind of different directions. This is a church where we pray every week, every week, for a local, state, and national leader. Every week, we're we're, we're involved in that. We understand our responsibilities there, but we do not put our hope in that. So with that said, let, let me explain something to you. There are those who put all their eggs in the basket of changing laws, put all their eggs in the basket of godly leaders and godly laws and so on and so forth. Here is what that amounts to for most people. Not all, but for most people, here's what it amounts to. I don't like the way my neighbor lives his life, but I don't have the guts or the compassion or the faith to share the gospel with my neighbor, so I will merely send enough people to Congress to force my neighbor to live outwardly the way I want to see him live. That's the political solution. I won't waste the energy to walk across the street and preach the gospel, but I will give my time, my talent, and my treasure in hopes that we can get enough people who think like us so that they can wash the outside of the cup of my neighbors who I don't care enough about to preach the gospel to so that I can feel better while I watch them go to hell. Now, did I just say that our laws don't matter? Shame on you. Shame on you if you believe that. You know better than that. You know me better than that. But that's not where our hope is. Why? Because of this truth. What the sinner does on the outside is a mere manifestation of what is on the inside. Do they need to be restrained outwardly? Yes. Praise God. But that's not the answer. Next, shame. Shame. He goes on to say, for when you were slaves to sin, You were free in regards to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? By the way, notice that he says the things of which you are now ashamed. Shame is a mercy from God. Zephaniah 3.5, the unjust knows no shame. The unjust knows no shame. His heart is hardened. 
he is callous toward his sin. In fact, he flaunts his sin before God. He shakes his fist at God, and he has absolutely no shame whatsoever. By the way, let me let me explain to go back to the political analogy. There, there are a lot of people who look back, for example, and they say, oh, back in whatever, you know, back in the 50s, back in the 20s, back in the 1800s, back in the 1700s, there was a completely different morality in our culture. You're absolutely right. There was a completely different morality in our culture because of those outward restraints. But what it was for the most part is people felt shame because of roles, norms, and mores. And in many instances, they happen to come from Scripture because of the influence of Scripture and culture. But that is not the same as a person who feels shame and remorse over their sin because the scales have been removed from their eyes. Job 8.22, those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Psalm 4.2, we heard it today. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Proverbs 13.5, the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Jeremiah 3.25, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We, our fathers from our youth, have even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And then Hosea 4.7, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. It is the grace of God that brings true evangelical shame. It is the grace of God that allows us to look back and be ashamed. It is the grace of God that allows the sinner's heart to be softened and be ashamed. I'm not talking about I'm ashamed because, you know, I got drunk in front of everybody and I made a fool out of myself. I'm ashamed I got pregnant and people can see that I'm pregnant out of wedlock. Therefore, no, see, that shame based upon other people's impression of me. That shame based upon my sin of pride. That is not the kind of shame that Paul talks about here. The kind of shame he talks about here is when we realize that we have offended a holy and righteous God and that we enjoyed every minute of it. Mercy of God comes upon your life. And we realize it was shameful. And death, impurity, lawlessness, shame, and death. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
this death was both a temporal spiritual reality and an eschatological reality. The day you eat of it, surely you shall die. He ate, and it became a temporal spiritual reality, but ultimately it became a physical reality and an eschatological reality for men. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You were dead. Death. That's the end of being a slave to sin. That's what you get for being a slave to sin. So there is impurity inwardly, lawlessness that manifests itself outwardly, shame over the things that we've done, and ultimately death is the only thing the sinner has to hope for. That is who you were, and you could only see it this side of the cross before you were blinded by it. Otherwise, how could you have woken up in the morning and gotten out of bed and begun your day if you knew that your lot in life was impurity, lawlessness, shame, and ultimately death. How could you face another day if you knew that that was the reality of your life? But thanks be to God. (laughs) That's who you were. That's who you were. On the other side, here's what we did. Liberation. You've been freed. Twice he says, we've been set free. We've been made free. There is liberation. Liberation from what? Again, not liberation to autonomy, because we're still a slave, but we're liberated from the old slave master. We're liberated, liberated from the old slave master. That's the first thing. You're free from that. Your whole lot in life was uncleanness, lawlessness, shame, and death. But now, Christ has liberated you from that. That is not who you are. That is not what defines you. That is not what lay ahead for you. Not only liberation, but justification. You have been declared righteous by God. You've been declared righteous by God. And it's not based on yourself. It can't be. Because all you brought was uncleanness, lawlessness, shame, and death. You've been declared righteous by God. When the adversary reminds you of all of those things that brought you shame, you know what you need to do? You need to be like Christian. When Apollyon came and met him, before they fought, Apollyon and all his threatenings and Pilgrim's Progress, he reminded Christian, how is this God going to receive you? You've been unfaithful to him even up to this point. And he pointed out, In the slew of the spawn, you got discouraged. No sooner you get on the other side of the wicked gate, you're ready to go up to law. Then you fell asleep and you lost your scroll. 
Then you faced those lions and you were terrified. You didn't even want to walk past them. Christian responds, all that you say is true and more. You could go on. That's just the stuff you know. Anybody ever felt like that? God has forgiven and declared me righteous. That is your current reality. Not only that, but sanctification. He says, So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Your justification leads to sanctification. I want you to grasp something. It's difficult for believers to grasp this idea of their sanctification and ultimately their glorification, because that next one is eternal life. That's what we go to is eternal life. And believers always feel like they're in peril, like their eternal life is not secure. Watch this. You ask a Christian, when you were a slave to sin, what would have happened had you not been saved? And they connect all the dots, and they go, oh, inevitably, uncleanness, lawlessness, shame, death. And it was absolutely secure. There was nothing that was going to change that apart from the grace of God. But you get them on the other side, and you go, okay, now you're saved. What's that? Liberation. I've been set free from that all life. Justification. He's declared me righteous. Most of us are terrified to claim that next step. Sanctification is inevitable for you, just like death was inevitable for you over there. Yeah, but, you know, only only if, really, because over there you never paused and said only if. But over here, if there's a hitch and you get along. By the way, that last step, eternal life, even most Christians will say, yeah, eternal life, that's where I'm going. But the idea of sanctification and righteousness, don't hold on to that as a present reality. And let me explain to you why. It is pride. Let me unpack that for you. Over here, we say, God is just. And had I stayed on that path, the just God would have seen it through and followed through with his wrath and my death and eternal damnation. Over here, we say, The just God is in control of most of this path, but there's another player who is equally as important as him, so when it comes to sanctification, I get the deciding vote, not God. That's why I cannot say that that is an absolute guarantee for me, because it depends on how I feel and how I perform. That's pride. That's 
self-reliance. It's also faithlessness. Here's the other thing. I just don't believe that God's going to sanctify me. It's also false piety. Somehow for me to say God's going to sanctify me means that I think more of myself than I ought. No. I didn't say I'm going to sanctify me. I said God's going to sanctify me. Amen? It's inevitable. Now, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to Romans chapter 8. But again, in Romans chapter 8, that, that, that chain, you know, in fact, we just, we'll read it anyway. By the time we get to Romans chapter 8, we will have preached it 19 times, but that's all right. Romans chapter 8, let's begin at verse 28. And we hope that, what, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, again, you have to understand that all things work together for good. You rip that kicking and screaming out of context, you know, and all of a sudden it's guaranteeing something that it never meant to guarantee. There's horrible things that come to you in your life, okay? All things work together for good. What's that good? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. He predestined your sanctification. How dare you not claim it? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. By the way, your sanctification is to the glory of Christ, not to the glory of you. It is you in your sanctified self that the Father grants to the Son, and the Son gives back to the Father as they exchange these gifts between one another. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. How many? All of them. So how is it that I can hold on to my future glorification, but I'm terrified to acknowledge the reality of my sanctification? It's pride, it's faithlessness, and it's false piety. He is sanctifying you. Yeah, but I don't feel like it. Uh, that's chapter 7. <laughs> but for now, just allow this statement to fall over you. He is sanctifying you. When he justified you, declaration is not just an outward statement. Here's what we do. We take this, you know, this courtroom scene, and we're all familiar with that illustration. And the judge is there, and here's all the charges, and the judge says, not guilty. Not only not guilty, but you're righteous. And in a way, that helps us to understand justification, Okay. In a way, it helps us to understand justification, but in a way, it doesn't. Because like every illustration, this illustration breaks down. 
here's what you need to realize. The one who says over you, you are righteous, is the one who said, let there be light. When he said, let there be light, there was not the potential there was light. The one who declared you righteous has as much spoken that into reality as he spoke this world into existence. And he will bring it to pass. He will conform you to the image of his son because he loves his son. He will present you faultless before his throne. Why? Because you're his people, that's why. He will see to it that you are victorious and more than a conqueror. Why? Because you impressed him? No, because he chose you. He liberated you. And you're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free. Not autonomous. Because now you're a slave to righteousness. And just like over there, your slavery meant certain things were inevitable realities. So too over here, your slavery means certain things are inevitable realities. Your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification. You used to be A. Now you're B. Believe that. Live like you believe it. And to God be the glory. The seventh sea of history. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit the world-class Creation Museum near Cincinnati. At the Creation Museum, we teach the seven seas of history, the foundational history in God's word. But one of those seas isn't history, it's still to come. And that's the final one, consummation. But what does consummation mean? Well, it means Christ is coming again. The Bible promises that Jesus would come once to be our saviour, and then he would come again. But this time he's not coming as a humble baby. He's returning as the victorious king. Those who love Christ look forward to his return. But for those outside of Christ, this will be a day of terror. If this thought strikes fear in your heart, come to Christ today for salvation. Learn more about the seven seas of history presented in our museum and how we can use this history to understand our world when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Take heart, Christian. You are elect. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In love, God predestined you for his glory. Your name was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God elected you. That's the doctrine of election. You might say, but wait, didn't I choose to believe in God? I repented of my sins and I have decided to follow Jesus, right? 
As far as your experience is concerned, yes, you chose to become a Christian. But when you read the Bible and understand the theology, you find out you didn't choose Christ, but he chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are born into sin, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Someone might say, but how can I know if I'm elect? And the answer is this. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Take up your cross daily and follow after him. That's how you know you're elect when we understand the text. Now is Oscar Navarro from Olivia Mother's podcast. I grew up without a biological father. I was, I was told he left before my first birthday. I had abusive stepdads. Uh, you know, I had one for seven years. It was physically abusive. Another one for seven years. It was sexually abusive. Uh, I was kicked out of my house by the time I was 13. Um, so just, I had no father figures. And then by the time I was 30, my wife is like, hey, let's try to find your biological father. And I, the only two stories that I knew about my biological father was that he was a drunkard. That's what my grandma told me, and that he liked to get into bar fights. So in my mind, at 30, I'm like, I don't need to go reach out to this guy. It doesn't really sound like he has much to offer, you know. Um, and thinking back, I just had bad fatherly experiences. I can specifically remember one of my stepdads at the wedding, of my mom's wedding with him. Like, he's walking around, and I can hear people ask, like, oh, who's that kid over there pointing to me? And I remember him saying, oh, that's Becky's son. You know, so even to call them stepdads wasn't really, like, they didn't never wanted to be my father. You know what I mean? I just didn't have a dad. So anyways, fast forward, I'm 30-something years old. Uh, I start to try to find my biological father. And actually, I'm on the phone with Easy when I get a phone call, and I'm like, I think this is him. So I hang up the phone with him, and I answer, and, it, and it's him. And, and the story shifted massively. Essentially, he did not leave us. My mom sort of, she was an, she was an addict. She kind of pushed him out of our lives. Uh, and he was looking for me for a really long time. She couldn't find me. So I meet this man. I go over to his house. They've got pictures of me on the wall. Uh, they would remember. He showed me a calendar. They would celebrate my birthday every year, count up my age. Uh, during Christmas, they would remember me. The neighbors knew me by name. My, I have two little brothers. Their friends knew me. They were like this little family that was like waiting for their older brother to come home. My brother who's 10 years younger than me, who's getting married, he asked me to officiate the wedding. So we're at the wedding, and we're turning the corner, and every corner I turned, my biological father is throwing his arm around me, saying, have you met my son? This is my son. And for the first time at 34, 35 years old, I knew what it was like to be loved by a father. The reason why I share that story isn't just because it's a great story of reconciliation to me and my father. It's speaks to a greater story of our reconciliation to our Father in heaven. How could you be discouraged knowing that through the blood of Christ, God the Father has his arm around you saying, this is my son. This is my daughter.
Are we living in the end times? This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on suffering and a good God, Divine Dilemma. Yesterday we learned that when Jesus is coming again, this time it will be as a victorious king. But when will that be? Well, many Christians are obsessed with the end times and trying to figure out if Christ's return is soon. But you know, the Bible tells us that no one will know the hour of Christ's return. Rather, he'll come like a thief in the night when we least expect him. So how close might we be to the end? Well, I don't know. But I do know this. We're living in the end times compared to those who came before us. So what do I mean? We're living closer to the end than previous generations. We just don't know how close. Learn more about God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again and find Ken Ham's writings at AnswersRadio.com. In John 3.3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus replied, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What does it mean to be born again? You've probably heard this term your whole life. You may have even called yourself a born-again Christian. But have you considered what it means? Everyone is born physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. As descendants of Adam, we've inherited his sin nature, separated from God. And the only way we can be right with God is to be born from above. We need the life of God in the soul of an otherwise dead man. When you hear the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave, and you repent and put your faith in Jesus, he has raised your spirit from the dead and given you new life, a spirit-filled life that loves God and desires his will, and you are born again. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In him we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So no longer live in your old dead ways, but according to the new birth that you have been given when we understand the text. We're already now in our study of Genesis. We've looked at the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of the world, the creation of man, the institution and ordination of marriage, and we've looked at the temptation that was brought to our original parents by Satan. But one thing we haven't touched yet, and that is the result of Adam and Eve's acts of disobedience. What happened to the human race as a result of their act of sin. Let's take a look for a moment at the the end of chapter 3 of Genesis. Let's pick it up at verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And it shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. But before we go on, let's look at this little section right here. 
where when God responds to the act of transgression, which is an offense against his nature, it's an act of lawlessness against God as the supreme judge of the universe, it places man in a status of moral indebtedness because man failed to keep the obligations that God rightfully opposed upon him. Now, the immediate result of this is that God's judgment comes down. But we notice that in the initial stages of the judgment, there's something wrong, something missing. Something doesn't fit. Do you remember the warning that God gave in the prohibitions uh, to Adam and Eve? He said to them that the day that you shall eat of it, what would happen? You shall die? You shall surely die. He underlines that, puts emphasis on it. If you eat of this tree, the penalty for that, the sanction that I'm putting around this activity is that if you eat, you surely die. It's an if-then construction. If A, B will inevitably follow. There's no negotiating that. This is the rule of God. Now, let me ask you this. First of all, suppose that God had exacted that penalty immediately, that as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the apple, they would have dropped dead, and that would have been the end of the race. Would such a punishment have been unjust? Would such a punishment have been unjust? You know, I've, I've lectured on this in other series, but I want to call your attention to it again, and that is that so often we look at the New Testament and we say, well, the New Testament is filled with mercy and love and grace, and the Old Testament is filled with harsh judgment and justice and wrath and all of that, as if there were two different gods. But don't you see that from the middle of chapter 3 of Genesis through the rest of the Bible, the accent is on grace. Because what is immediately evident is that God does not execute the full measure of penalty that he has established for this violation. God does not destroy Adam and Eve. He allows them to live. Now, some of you are going to, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now, wait a minute. But they didn't live. They suffered spiritual death that day. Yes, they did suffer spiritual death as part of the consequences of their sin, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the, the threat of judgment that God had spoken to them went beyond spiritual death. It was death, death. The Greek thanatos, you know, being uh, forfeiting the very power of life. Now, maybe you think that penalty is so severe that God couldn't in his justice have enacted it, that, uh, that God was like sometimes uh, a parents are, when they want so much to keep their children in line, they will be over-severe in their threats. If you do this, I'm going to wring your neck, where you have no intention of wringing their neck. You maybe want to swat them on the backside, but you're not going to wring their neck. And maybe this is all we have here is God overstating the penalty. Well, think of it. Would it be unjust if God would have removed the gift of life from Adam and Eve? What had they done? 
in their act of disobedience. Hmm? Who did they defy? Who did they defy? The one who created them. The one to whom they owed everything. The garden, the food that they ate, the bodies that they enjoyed, the air that they breathed, the thoughts that they thought. Everything they had, everything that they enjoyed, everything that they possessed, they owed absolutely to their creator. Now, what else about the creator? Was the creator an imperfect creator who was a bumbler and who, uh, uh, you know, had to work from scratch and work with several different models and maybe uh, didn't do such a good job and so we could shift the blame to him? The creator is perfectly righteous. There's no shadow of turning in him. He's a holy God. And yet man, who is finite from the dust contingent, raises his fist in defiance against the eternally holy, self-existent creator of the universe. When we think about arch-criminals in our society, you maybe will think of Jack the Ripper, Judas, so on, but some of those who, who reach the, uh, the elevated uh, levels of infamy include such people as Benedict Arnold, the Rosenbergs, and so on, because they committed what we call heinous acts of treason against the government of the United States. If crimes of treason are considered gross and heinous because we kill the President of the United States, war wars have been fought over killing high-ranking officials, how about if you commit an act of treason against the supreme governor of the universe? You realize that when you sin and when I sin, what we're saying is that God... You're wrong, and I'm right. I challenge his omniscience. I challenge his knowledge. Or I say, I'm going to do this because I want to do this, and you can't stop me. I challenge his power, his might, and but most of all, I challenge his right to rule, his right to govern. And that is is treason. Remember, Paul tells us that the basic sin of man is man's refusal to honor God as God and to be grateful to God. Now, in this act of transgression in the garden, Adam and Eve dishonored God and exhibited extreme ingratitude. It's an offense against an infinitely perfect and infinitely holy being. And I think the theologians are correct when they say that a just penalty for a crime against an infinitely valuable being is infinite and eternal punishment. But God did not do that. Instead, He allowed Adam and Eve to continue their existence. But there were 
penalties imposed. What were the penalties? God pronounces a curse. A curse that focuses primarily on one word. Pain. Pain. And humiliation. There's a sense in which the entrance of pain and humiliation are marked at the gateway to the Garden of Eden. And the pain and humiliation begins with the serpent who became the vehicle for the satanic seduction. And God says to the serpent, from this day forth, you are going to be the lowest beast of the field. You crawl on your belly, you eat dust. And not only that, I'm going to build in a kind of hostility or aversion or enmity between you and these people whom I have established giving dominion over the world. There's going to be a special kind of repulsion between you and mankind. Have you ever wondered about the role of the snake in the history of Western civilization, in cultures, in art, in literature, that when somebody wants to to be particularly fiendish in uh, in moving into the occult, they begin to worship or play with snakes, to act against this basic enmity that we have there. Have you ever noticed yourself? feeling an irrational or what seems to be an irrational hostility towards snakes. We know the black snakes are helpful. They're good, and yet there's something gruesome about snakes. But not only does the pain and the curse come upon them, but it comes upon the woman pain in the natural act of delivering children. One of the greatest moments of personal self-fulfillment that a human being can ever experience is giving birth to a child. God has associated a level of pain that makes it a very difficult price to pay to experience the ecstasy of childbirth. And what about the man? It's not that he is sentenced to labor as a punishment for the, for the fall. Man and woman were called to work before the fall ever takes place. Work isn't the curse, but what is the curse? Hmm? The earth will resist the efforts of me. The thorns will spring up. Which is it easier to grow, weeds or flowers? You wonder about that? And not only that, but now there is an added burden of sweat, called he, that attaches itself to the making of a living. There are all kinds of obstacles out there, thorns and the sweat that makes it difficult to provide shelter, clothing, food, life itself and its necessities to and for his family. Well, notice that in this curse, there is also a promise, what some scholars call the announcement of the proto-evangel. 
Now, what do you suppose that word means? What does proto mean? What's a prototype? What's a prototype? Have you ever heard the word prototype? Yeah. Everybody's heard the word prototype. What, what is it? What kind of a model is it? What kind of experimental model is it? What's the difference between a prototype and a deuterotype? The first. The first. That's right. comes from the Greek word protos, which means first in a series. So the proto-evangel, do you know what that word means? You get the word evangelism from it. It comes from the Greek a-one-galion, which is the New Testament word for gospel. So the first proclamation of the gospel is the proto-evangel. Proto-evangel, the first proclamation of the gospel in all of sacred scripture. Did you hear it when I read it? When, Jesus, when, when uh, God says, I will put enmity, verse 15, Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, what does that mean? Between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent, there will be hostility. That is, the descendants of the serpent's seed will bruise, I'm, I'm sorry, it, the descendant of Eve, will bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the picture there is what? Of a man or a child or a woman, some descendant of Eve, walking down the street and lying in the shadows there is this serpent or this snake. And the serpent comes out to get the human being. And the human being crushes the head of the serpent with his heel. But in the process, what does the serpent do? Bites him in the heel. And this is seen as the foreshadowing of what event? The cross, where the head of, Sir, of Satan is crushed on the cross, but at the painful price of bruising the Lamb of God. He was bruised for our iniquities. He is bruised by the very one he is conquering so that Christ doesn't go through this unscathed. But he is victorious when he crushes the head of the serpent. Okay. Verse 18. Then in verse 17. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life, that is, from the ground. Thorns also and thistles shall bring it forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now here's what happens. God does not rescind the death penalty for sin. In fact, here, he sentences man to what? To death. 
But what he does in exercising his executive clemency is he grants a temporary stay of execution. But at the judgment, at the edge of the garden, God pronounces man and woman guilty, and he said, you will die. Physically die. You came from the dust, you're going to go back to the dust. You're going to die. And I'm not going to remove that. But I am going to punish the serpent. I am going to hold out a gospel of redemption for you. And while I'm working that out in the meantime, I will grant you graciously an extension of life. It will be a painful life. You will have lost some of your dignity that you enjoyed in the garden. It will be a life that, that will incur humiliations from time to time. And it will move inexorably towards the dust because you will die. But it is this dimension of the original sentence that is removed today. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to grant mercy. I'm going to give you a stay of execution. And in that stay of execution, we're going to, we're going to redeem the human race. But you don't touch the tree of life until the penalty for this sin has been taken care of, the result of sin. This is the point that the Bible says that we often don't pay attention to in our culture, that death is not natural. Death is supernatural. Inasmuch as death is a penalty that God has given to the human race because of sin. And the reason why everybody dies is because everybody's tainted by sin. You say, wait a minute, what about babies that die within six weeks after they're born or within six hours after they're born? Are they killed for their sins? No, they're not killed for committing actual sin, but that child is born in sin. He's born infected and blemished with the fallenness of the race from which he has been brought. The Bible teaches that. We may not like it. And some of the natural historians and philosophers say, well, all this is is nothing but a myth or a fable or a parable. We talked about that one other time. But again, we have to account for the fact that everybody in the world sins. Why is it that everybody sins? Why is everybody a sinner? Do we sin because we are sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? We sin because we are sinners, which is to say that every human being has a sin nature, a nature that is fallen. And out of this sin nature flows sins. I am a sinner with a capital S. That's why I am a sinner with a little s. Does that make sense? Now, the thing that, that's, uh, where people get confused is that uh, people will ask me, often, do you believe in original sin? Well, of course I believe in original sin. And I just might add, even though that concept is under much attack today, the idea of some notion of original sin 
is part of the heritage of every single church in the World Council of Churches. The Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine of original sin. The Lutheran Church has a doctrine of original sin. The Presbyterian Churches have a doctrine of original sin. The Episcopalian Church has a doctrine of original sin. Methodist Church, Baptist Church, you name it, they all have some doctrine of original sin. Now, they may debate about the extent of man's fallenness and what remains in terms of man's natural powers, but everyone recognizes that man has fallen. Now, when we talk about original sin, we do not mean the first sin. That's where people get confused. Original sin is not the original sin (laughs) or the first sin that was ever committed. Original sin refers to the result of the first sin. What original sin refers to is this fallen sin nature that is part of the punishment for the first sin. When Adam and Eve acted against God, they didn't act as private individuals. Adam's very name, Adam, means what? Man. Eve, woman, the mother of the living. These two stood as our supreme representatives before Almighty God. And God said, I'm going to test the entire race, you and your descendants, with this experience in the garden. And what you do will have consequences, not only for you, but for those whom you represent. I I don't have time to get into the theology of this, but I just might ask you to remember in passing that never, ever in your life were you better represented than you were in paradise. This is the first time and the only time in your lives that you had an infallibly selected representative. God doesn't make mistakes. When God selects a representative for you, you can be sure that your representative represented you. Okay? So you were there by representation. And so we all suffer the consequences, which is this sin nature. And that sin nature is sometimes described as the state of spiritual death. We are dead in sin, the Bible says. We are dead to the things of the Spirit, to the things of God, unless we are reborn from above, unless God the Holy Spirit quickens new life within us. So two kinds of death come into play at the fall. Spiritual death, and how soon does that take place? Immediately. Physical death, which is inevitable, but not immediate. Okay? Remember, dear, benign, lovely Mother Nature is the greatest mass killer of them all. Mother Nature has killed every one of her sons and daughters, with the exception of those who are still living on the earth, waiting their execution and it is because we are sinners that we must die and even though we have been promised life after death and death for the Christian is not the same as death for the unbeliever because for us it's a transition a moving to something greater than we have here nevertheless there is still there is still 
bit, fear, a little bit of pain. There's still a sting to it because it is the last enemy to be destroyed. And from this day, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden to live east of Eden. And God placed a sentry at the gates to paradise, an angel with a flaming sword. The first act of government on this planet, government with force, government with power, government with a sword, to prevent entry, unlawful entry into paradise. The rest of the scripture tells about not simply the restoration of paradise, but the redemption of paradise. So that what we have as Christians is not merely paradise regained. It's not like we get a second chance to go back there and be a restored state of innocence and have to go through the trial again. But we go to a paradise where the new Adam has prevailed and death is no more and pain is no more because sin is no more. Why does Jesus need to come again? This is Ken Ham, encouraging churches to stand on the authority of God's word. This week, we're looking at Jesus' return, when he'll come back as the victorious king. But why does Jesus need to come again? Well, the world we live in is not the world God originally created. It's groaning with death and suffering because of our sin. But the Bible reveals that one day Jesus will create a new heavens and a new earth. In this new creation, there won't be any death, suffering, pain, or crying. All the consequences of man's sin will be done away with, and those who have trusted Christ will live with him for eternity. Yes, creation groans now, but when Jesus returns, he'll put everything right again, and what a day that will be. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find out about our Answers TV programs at AnswersRadio.com. If somebody can predict their own death and then their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world. Because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing, and in fact, you should know this, that Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, Andy, so you're not amazed about the fact that the Old Testament prophets predicted his birth, specifically the virgin birth, and then it happened? Not just the lineage and the time, but the exact place? We shouldn't be all that concerned with those details, even though it's literally the first event we read in the New Testament? Just how important is the virgin birth? Well, if Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that means he was conceived by the seed of man. The Bible says everyone born of Adam is born under the curse of Adam, inheriting his sin nature. We would not be able to call Christ sinless if this were the case. But because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is perfect. When the angel said he will save his people from their sins, we know that's true because he was virgin born. He is God incarnate, the pure and spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The virgin birth is as important as Christ's death and resurrection. Got it, Andy? The thing that makes the Christmas story so believable is the fact that the entire story is so remarkable. 
No one would have made this up. No one could have made this up. No. The thing that makes the Christmas story so believable is the Holy Spirit, who discerns for us spiritual mysteries, such as the virgin birth, when we understand the text. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. There's a big problem with Elon Musk's Middle East peace plan. What he said is very powerful and it's right, but I don't think it'll work and that's for a very good reason. Make sure you watch this video until the end because I'm going to dismantle something Elon Musk said about the Bible. And I'm going to tell you what it is that once and for all will solve the problem of the Middle East. So let me ask you about the wars going on today and to see what the path to peace could be. That part of the world is, is definitely, like if you look at the, there is no easy answer in the dictionary. It will be that, like the picture of uh, the Middle East. The goal of Hamas was to provoke an overreaction from Israel. Um, they obviously did not expect to uh, you know, have a military victory, um, but they... They really wanted to commit the worst atrocities that they could in order to provoke the most aggressive response possible from Israel and then leverage that aggressive response to rally Muslims worldwide for the cause of Gaza and Palestine, which they have succeeded in doing. Tens of thousands in Washington showing their support this weekend to the Palestinian people. Marchers taking to the streets of Washington, D.C., many waving Palestinian flags and calling for a ceasefire. Some similar protests were held in major cities around the globe, including Toronto, London, Paris, and Berlin. The, the thing that I think should be done, even though it is very difficult, uh, is that um, I, I would recommend that Israel engage in the most conspicuous acts of kindness possible. So in some sense, the degree that makes sense in geopolitics, turn the other cheek. It was Jesus that said a Christian should turn the other cheek. This is often misunderstood by the world. He turned the other cheek when he was smitten by soldiers. He said that he could call 12 legions of angels to his defense, but he didn't. And the Bible tells us why. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's what the Christian should do. If someone mistreats us, God will take vengeance if he sees fit to do so. 
ill handle my enemies. That's why we turn the other cheek. Not exactly turn the other cheek, um, because I do think it's appropriate for Israel to find the Hamas members and either kill them or incarcerate them. Um, like that's something that something has to be done because they're just going to keep 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 coming. Otherwise, in addition to that, they need to do whatever they can. Um, there's some talk of uh, establishing, for example, a mobile hospital, just making sure that uh, you know there's food, water, uh, medical necessities. In the Second World War, after the Allies bombed Berlin, they put into practice what Elon Musk is saying. They helped to rebuild it. Without imports from America, Germans under our military government would starve. Every problem in Germany, housing, clothing, health, industry, is desperate. But the most acute is food. We are literally keeping our former enemies alive. Even with our help, the average German ration is 35% below minimum health needs. And the average German is 30 pounds underweight. General McDonnie has said, you can't teach democracy to hungry men. They show kindness in an effort to defuse hatred. So America must remain on guard until these people have forgotten how to hate. This ultimately fights the broader force of hatred in the, in the region. Yes. However, I don't believe that would work in this case. When you're dealing with radical Islam, you're dealing with enemies of Israel. They are sworn to destroy it, and that agenda is not negotiable. I'm not sure who said it, so it's an apocryphal saying, but an eye for, the, for an eye makes everyone blind. Here's a well-known example of the eye for an eye mentality. Sir, so this is the time, this is the place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults if we can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your... Yeah. You stand... Oh, oh hold on. No, stop it. Say it's loose and every pull. No, no, sit down. Oh, Eric, sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Act it. Okay, sit down, please. I asked a random college student who happened to be a political philosophy major how she'd bring about peace in the Middle East, and I used this topic to springboard into the gospel. You'll be shocked at what she said. And at the end, I'll explain why Elon Musk is dead wrong about his eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth analogy, and I'll also reveal the only permanent solution to achieving peace in the Middle East. You're studying political philosophy? I am. So how would you handle peace in the Middle East? What would you say to them? Oh, goodness. Um, obviously, I think everybody is looking for some level of peace and a ceasefire. I was listening to Elon Musk give his thoughts on it. He said Israel should show kindness to the Palestinians. Do you think that'll work? It's not sort of going to be done away with, with just the call for kindness. Do you think there's life after death? I don't think anyone can know, but I don't believe in a soul. You don't believe in heaven and in hell? Definitely not. Do you believe in God? If I were to believe in a God, I think it would probably see like the Spinoza's pantheistic or n-pantheistic um, style of God. Spinoza's God is just another form of idolatry. That's kind of trendy, because that's what Einstein believes. See if you can guess why Einstein didn't like the God who said, you shall not commit adultery. Changing the subject a little bit, do you think you morally are a good person? I try to be. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, so many. Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small in your whole life, irrespective of its value? Of course. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Definitely, but I don't believe in God. I know that. <laughs> if I don't believe in the law, I'm still subject to the law. If I don't believe in judges or prison or the electric chair, I'm still subject to it, no matter what I don't believe. 
Now, a little embarrassing for me, but Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in the heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Definitely. Sex before marriage. Of course. Here's a quick summation. You're not a good person. You're like the rest of us. You've told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, a fornicator, and an adulterer at heart. So here's the big question. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, we've looked at four, on Judgment Day, would you be innocent or guilty? Oh, I'd be guilty, but I don't believe in the Christian God or the Ten Commandments as the arbiters of morality. So I know that. That's why I'm speaking to you. You're called an unbeliever for a reason, because you don't believe. So if you're guilty on Judgment Day, would you go to heaven or hell? Hell, but I like fire. I don't think it's funny, because I care about you. The thought of you going to hell breaks my heart. You know what death is? According to the Bible, it's wages. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal who laughs at the law and says, I don't believe in the law, but he's committed murder. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages, and this is what's due to you. And Reese, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row, and your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. What did God do so the guilty sinners wouldn't have to go to hell? Do you know? People believe that he created a person that he embodied and then died. On the cross? Yeah. Now, most people know that, but they don't know this. And, Reese, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays them. You see, out of here, even though you're guilty, you can leave, and it's legal. And God can legally take the death sentence off you because of what Jesus did on the cross, paying the fine. Now, I can prove God to you in 30 seconds, scientifically. You want me to do it? I have a minute left. Okay, a minute. A minute's all I need. Every building is absolute proof there was a builder. Every painting is absolute proof there was a painter. The painter could have died 500 years ago, but you know there was a painter because paintings don't paint themselves. You know there was a builder because buildings don't build themselves. And the whole of creation is evidence of God's creative hand, flowers and birds and trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, puppies, kittens, fruits, seasons, male and female and all the species, the miracle of the human eye, the marvels of childbirth. All these things show you intuitively that there's a God, but we deny him because of our moral guilt. We don't want anything to do with God for the same reason criminals don't want to go near the police. But the day is coming when you have to face God, and I want you to be saved on Judgment Day. I want to see you in heaven, not in hell. You'll be very gracious. You gave me a whole minute. Thank you very much, Reese, and you've been very humble to listen to what I had to say, and I really appreciate that. What do you think about – I know what you're going to say. What do you think about what we talked about today? Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I would add, though, to sort of the creator argument is the false analogy between, like, the clockwork or the building or the painting, which is a non-animate and non-evolving thing. Um, sort so of mountains. Mountains are non-animate. They're inanimate. They're not evolving mountains. Sure. Well, they didn't happen by accident. God created the whole earth. Uh, but you can say that this happened by accident just through natural processes, and the same can be true through the evolution of humans and stuff like that. Like, you can say that God created the process of evolution that then created all of the rest. Jesus of destroyed that with one sentence. You know what he said? He said, in the beginning, God made the male and female. I know you're going to go. So God made the male and female in the beginning. They weren't sludge that became male and female over millions of years and reproduced after themselves. Can I give you a 
Can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? No, thank you. Oh, please. Thank you. Can I give you a couple of in and out cards as a thank you for lunch today? I really appreciate that. Thank you, but I'm okay. okay. Nice to meet you, Reese. Thank you. Reese unfortunately had a misunderstanding about the Bible. Now listen to what Elon Musk got dead wrong about the scriptures, as well as what the Bible says is the permanent solution for achieving peace in the Middle East. Before we look at what Elon Musk said, let me tell you about six items that contain the gospel that you can give to your unsaved loved ones, friends, co-workers, and neighbors this Christmas. Let me show you real quick. Divine Dining, food from the Bible, presented by an award-winning New York chef, and here's the gospel. The Ten Commandments gold coin. The commandments on one side and the gospel on the other. The Evidence Study Bible. 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith. So much more. Three book series. Beatles God on the Bible, Einstein God on the Bible, and Hitler God on the Bible. Fascinating reads. Jake's Fortune. A fast-moving novel that you won't be able to put down. If you don't believe me, check the reviews. Humorous books. 101 of the dumbest things people have done, 101 things husbands do to annoy their wives, and 101 things dogs do to annoy their owners. Again, all these tastefully and yet uncompromisingly present the gospel. And we have devotionals for the new year. Jesus in red, my comfort is Jesus, and wisdom for light. You can find these at livingwaters.com. Thanks for your patience. And now back to Elon Musk. Sure, who said it? It's an apocryphal saying, but an eye for an eye makes everyone blind. When the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's not saying that if we're missed, we should take the law into our own hands. It's not speaking of retribution, but restitution. If someone steals my car, they should have to get me another one. A car for a car, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. If, if you're not going to just outright commit genocide, like against an entire people, which obviously would not be acceptable to, to, to really should be acceptable to anyone, um, then you're, you're going to leave basically a lot of people alive who subsequently, you know, hate Israel. So really the question is like, for, for every Hamas member that you kill, how many did you create? And if you create more than you kill, you've not succeeded. That's the, you know, the real situation there. Kill somebody's child in Gaza. If you've, you've made at least a few uh, Hamas members who will die just to just kill an Israeli, that's the situation. But, but, I mean, this is one of the most contentious subjects one could possibly discuss. But, but I, I think if, if, the, if the goal ultimately is some sort of long-term peace, one has to be look at this from the standpoint of, over time, are there more or fewer uh, terrorists being created? The only permanent solution will be when the Prince of Peace comes to rule the nations with a rod of iron, when God's will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. If you've not seen our video as Elon Musk, a Christian now, you've got to see it. Over 4 million views, it's very thought-provoking. You can watch it right now by clicking up to your left. That's all for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.